0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Madison Pierce and I talk about the recent Wycliffe Scripture and Theology Colloquium. She presented a paper there, and the conversation was about the Brazos commentary series that was really focused on theological interpretation that has now come to an end. And so Ephraim Radner, David Nelson, R.R. Reno, and Mark Elliott, along with Madison, had this conversation. What happened? Why did the series end up? ultimately failing in some sense. It's no longer being published. They're not finishing out the series with all the volumes. And a bigger conversation about the theological interpretation movement, where it's come from, where it's going. And Madison and I have a conversation on this, sort of reflecting on this colloquium. Both of us are interested in TIS and both contribute to, or at least try to, hope to, uh, contribute to the TIS conversation. And so we just talked through that a little bit. What is the future of it? What are some hopes that we have for it? And how might we be able to sort of take the best of what happened in the TIS movement and move forward with it? Be looking out for a part two to this conversation with my colleague Ched Spellman, who does a lot of work in canon studies. There's a lot of overlap there, and he watched the colloquium as well. So we want to talk through this a little bit more and really just have a big conversation about the relationship between theology. Biblical theology, systematic theology, hermeneutics, church history, all these kind of things to get wrapped up there. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Madison. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. All right, Madison Pierce is back. I have uh, stolen you right after you did, what, a two-hour presentation slash conference slash something or another with Wycliffe about TIS. How long were you sitting there doing all that?
1: It's been
2: five hours. Five hours, um, okay. Yeah, it's been all day. So there were four of us and then a panel discussion. So it's it's been a thing. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm committed to church grammar that mm-hmm. after that amount of time on Zoom, here I am. Back talking to you, Brandon.
0: yeah Well, it is in your contract that you have yeah. to you have to show up when I ask you to. So mm-hmm.
2: with a right. little notice.
0: Little note. I gave you what a week this time? That was pretty good. Mm. Was it not a week? Yeah. Yeah. Weekish. All right. Um, so let's talk about that. I thought it might be an interesting conversation. You and I have gone back and forth uh recently about uh theological interpretation. Uh, partially because of, you know, something I'm working on. And then obviously, you were working on this paper at the same time, we both, uh, in some ways, hope to or try to contribute uh, to this conversation. So maybe we could start with you just talking about that paper. What were you arguing? What were you doing? What was kind of the kind of the context there? And I think that'll because I've read it. So I've seen sort of what you're doing there. So I think that'd be a good springboard maybe for uh, some of the things that we can talk about. So once you once you do that first.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the this was the Wycliffe Colloquium. I think the formal title is Wycliffe Colloquium on Theology and Scripture, um, or sorry, Scripture and Theology. And the question was, what, w- what have we learned about theological interpretation from the Brazos Theological Commentary series? And so, as was discussed at length today, uh, the series has... Um, been canceled. And there are, there are a few more volumes that'll come out. But um, you know, several will never appear, including one on Hebrews by Dave Nelson. So I'm, I'm pretty sad about that. Mm. Um, I, I really like Dave, and I think he would have done some great work there. Um, but nevertheless, uh, this kind of led to a bigger um, reflection on theological interpretation, the kind of stated things. And I was there as a quote, unquote, sympathetic critic. Um and also as the token biblical scholar and boy howdy <laughs> did I feel it. Yeah. Um, so I um you know I was coming in and talking about theological interpretation from my vantage point, which is of course very Durham and very uh, you know oriented around biblical studies because um I mean at Durham it's the biblical scholars who are doing that, and um so in the paper. Um, I talk about definitions, I rely heavily on Van Hooser and Trier and others, um, kind of in the, especially in the evangelical uh, TIS movement. Um, and then kind of say, okay, uh, we've clearly moved beyond talking about what TIS is. Um, most people aren't really having that more theoretical discussion anymore, but we're still doing it. Um, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, there have been a lot of projects that would Fit under the umbrella of theological interpretation, even if they wouldn't fit under the umbrella of like TIS formally. Um, And then I talk about, you know, um, what I hope for TIS, what I think are marks of fruitful um, theological interpretation, and uh, some other things. So I'll leave it there and see if you want to jump in on something in particular.
0: Yeah, I think that conversation, just kind of where TIS was and where it is, is interesting because one of the common tropes about TIS is that nobody actually knows what it is. I think didn't you, did you keep that title of your paper that I saw that was like, uh, you know, yeah. it when you see it, yeah. which is kind of true, and also kind of like a backhanded insult from the outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, there are a lot of different versions of TIS. I think I mentioned it sometime in the past, and I was talking to Trier uh, one of the times on on the podcast, we had talked about how you know, some people from the early TIS movement, like Van Hooser are basically, like, I don't really even like the term anymore. Because it doesn't mean it doesn't mean what I wanted it to mean or it might mean something different. When I talked to Van Hooser directly I think you know he basically was saying uh, what I would describe TAS as is a sort of evangelical account that holds to the authority of scripture and sort of the norming of scripture uh, by which we get our doctrines right so we're not sort of uh, forcing theology into the text but rather trying to use tools to understand the theology that's native to the text for lack of a better word um so i think that that's where it seems to me like most of tis has landed um you know obviously there's still uh Howard wass and Fowl and some others who are still doing uh work that's different in some ways uh, but it does seem like in some ways they were some of the earlier uh interlocutors and some of the people that contributed to brazos uh and so i think i think you had mentioned i heard somebody else who was at the conference which i apparently could have attended and had no idea i would have like i had that whole open day i could have i could have just sat in my office and watched it but um, there was a lot of conversation about post-liberal, uh, Yale, such and such, such and such, you know, the sort of detached from the text, uh, s- stuff like that. Right. So, uh, I say all that to say, you know, TIS does seem to have a sort of fluid definition based on who's using it. So how did you work through that in your paper? I know you did some stuff there on the sort of history and development and where we are now. So what would you, how would you kind of summarize where we were and then how we got to where we are?
2: Yeah, um, so I pick up on three different kind of characteristics, and, you know, I think that these are, these can be debated or whatever, but the three I put forward on paper, you know, one that scripture is formative, I think that's important, uh, or these are features of TIS kind of in its earlier stages, Um, so scripture is formative, community is important, and, you know, this is a mark of retrieval, Um, so it's, you know, return to an older way of reading. Um, and so I think that, that those are some of the um, principles that we see in some of that. I mean, um, you know, Trier's going to talk about practices. There are some other ways that it's construed, but those are the kind of threads that I see when I'm reading um, everyone from Van Hooser to Trier to Moberly to Watson. Um, so I think that that kind of transcends some of the um, denominational boundaries or, you know, is a little more ecumenical. Um, and of course, there's different def- definitions of scripture and things like that or a doctrine right. of scripture that would come in. But nevertheless, um, and so then in kind of saying, you know, where are we now? Um, you know, I think I think uh, personally that uh, some of those features um, or some of the things that are meant to be kind of standard for TIS are not really observable. Um, they're things that are admirable. I mean, I, of course, um, as an evangelical um, and as a theological interpreter more broadly, uh, think that scripture should be formative. Um, that's essential to my worldview and also um, to my practice as a biblical scholar. Um, you know, but. Um, Am I going to say in my work on Hebrews? um, Hi, I'm Madison, and Scripture is formative for me, and you know, and here's how, and I'm doing this as an evangelical interpreter. Um, uh, You know, I'm not sure that I'll be quite so um, uh, forthright about that, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure that my presuppositions are coming out as I'm interpreting. So, um, yeah, do you want to? Jump in. I don't, I want this to like be a little more conversational than just me yeah. teaching my paper. I've been talking no, a lot today. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's fair. No, I, I think I do, I do want to sort of clarify something I said earlier, which is I don't mean to insinuate that like how Ross doesn't care about the Bible when I say to, you know, sort of detach from the text. It's just sort of there are different ways, like you said, different doctrines of scripture, different ways of even thinking about what scripture is. If you're coming out of a more, you know, Hans Fry Yale uh, perspective on what scripture is and what it's supposed to do, that's very different than your sort of classic. Protestant evangelical, you know, version of that, for example, uh, that maybe a Van Hooser or somebody else would do. So I think that is helpful to think through, think through that. I mean, it it was funny when, uh, we were talking, uh, about your paper, when you asked me for feedback, even though, um, I had no substantial feedback (laughs) to give, um, but sort of the feedback of of this idea of it being socially located in presuppositions was kind of what you brought up there um yeah it's tough you know wesley hill has that has that article on doctrinal exegesis uh that we both uh love mm-hmm. and he talks about there about how on the one hand some people should just be more actual forthright about like just say it i'm a confessional i'm, I'm whatever this is my presupposition. let's just acknowledge it uh which yeah. i try to do that in some things i'm writing i'm like look like we're not we're not pretending here that i'm not uh you know taking these different positions so if you're saying theological interpretation of Scripture, all three of those words mean different things to different people, theology, interpretation, and Scripture. So, um, you know, when you talk about being socially located, for example, well, um, yeah, if if you're thinking theologically, how do I draw from the text, these theological principles, or how do I take the theological principles, I assume, and find them in the text, for lack of a better word? Well, that is going to be significantly different based on who the person is. Uh, Now, obviously, that can ruffle evangelical feathers, because it's kind of saying, I'll just make the text mean whatever I want it to mean, which is not what I think responsible uh, TIS people are doing. They're just saying, look, because of my perspective, because of my presuppositions, I might see different angles to this text differently than you might, you know, if I'm a uh, African American, for example, I might see Exodus and the slave language differently than a white guy who's never experienced it or whatever, right. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's those kind of things I think are important to think through. So um, what is your sort of, Uh, I know you just told me not to interview you, but, um, you're my guest. So, uh, people, people want to hear Madison Pierce, got to give the people what they want. Um, how do you work through some of that in terms of, uh, the quote unquote, meaning of the text versus the presuppositions and things that we bring to the text? What is good about our presuppositions? What's bad? How do you work through some of those issues on, uh, when it comes to TIS? Yeah,
2: I think this is where, um, Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think take as much time as you need.
0: If if you need a 20 minute answer, it's fine.
2: Fabulous. Um, Now I've got the microphone. Okay. So I mean, first of all, you know, we're talking about socially located readings. And so of course, we're talking about, um, you know, an author being cognizant of his or her background, um, whether it's gender, um, ethnicity, Uh, you know, broader cultural concerns, even education. So this is where the kind of Yale school comes in. Mm And even though a lot of times, um, people from uh, dominant Western traditions don't necessarily recognize the the way that their social location plays in, um, I do think that's important. And I think we saw that represented a lot in my interlocutors today um but so that's different than something like ideological criticism and this has collapsed a lot in some really unhelpful ways so ideological critical readings are those like um post-colonial feminist queer you know those kinds of readings because these are actually they're called critical readings because they are in a sense criticizing the text they're Mm -hmm. saying i as this kind of person or a person who identifies in this way or you know i as a person who is highlighting this aspect of myself um you know, find this part of the text difficult, and that's not what a socially located reading is doing. Mm -hmm. It's saying, this is how I read, and I'm going to highlight an aspect of my distinctive experience of the text. Um, And, you know, sure, some of that does probably feel like a little loosey-goosey and determined by the the reader, Um, but I would say that it's actually more self-aware, because we're Mm. all doing that. Um, We just, are, you know, some of us um, who are considered to be strange or outliers within the tradition because of our gender, ethnicity, culture, et cetera, um, we're reminded of our strangeness a lot more often. So um, I guess um, as far as, you know, how do we get to meaning? I mean, we, we read in community. I mean, that is one of the, um, the features of TIS that I push on a little bit. Um, but you know, for, uh, because, um, a reader for a reader, it's difficult to understand what role community plays in Mm -hmm. the formation of TIS, but I, as an author, um, I choose to engage with my various communities, including you, Brandon, as I'm sending you my work and making sure that I'm not going off the rails or whatever, I'm engaging with the creeds, I'm engaging with my church and, you know, these different people who are formative in my life. And ensuring that what I'm saying is over overall faithful to the text, even if I am interpreting as Madison Pierce, um you know, evangelical mother, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so th- I think those things are important to me, and so they shape the way I read. But anyways,
0: yeah. Well, that's it's interesting too. One of the things that you bring out in the paper uh, is the aspect of retrieval, in particular, in some sort of strands of TIS, and you know. Uh, you know, this, my dissertation, and then kind of me working on it now, and just sort of trying to revise it and whatnot. You know, one of the things that I just want to I'm sort of cognizant of is, on the one hand, I take retrieval as a good guardrail and a good way to read, say, like, if I disagree with 2000 years of church history, this is this might be me, Uh, you know, not scripture. Um, And some of those kind of things, these kind of time tested uh, things. I mean, I talk a lot about uh, pro-Nicene Trinitarianism and saying, okay, I think, Gregory and Athanasius probably did it better than I did. Uh, they answered more questions and and dealt with a lot of different pushback and and always find things helpful there. So on the one hand, I think retrieval is a good guardrail, for example, right? But part of the reason why I think retrieval is a good guardrail is because I think it's biblically faithful. It's not that I'm trying to make the Bible fit with my version, what I like about the early church. You know, I think Fred Sanders said something uh on the podcast a couple episodes ago where he said, you know, we don't just do retrieval because we like antiques. You know, it's not just because yeah we like old stuff, it's because actually we think it's faithful. So that's the hard part is like, you know, a Baptist or a Presbyterian, for example, might read the text two different ways. And, you know, you think about baptism, well, for, you know, that that's a completely different interpretive grid in some ways between a Presbyterian and a Baptist, or an Anglican or, or Catholic or whoever. So that presupposition comes to the text, but that presupposition is also should be informed by the text saying, well, the reason why I'm a Baptist is because I think the Bible teaches us. or the reason why I agree with Athanasius here is because I think it's faithful to scripture. So that's where I think we have to be careful not to, um, you know, uh, not to not to treat presuppositions as I just make it say whatever I wanted to say, like you said, right. And that's where the guardrails and accountability come in. And, and everybody judges differently what their guardrails and accountability are. But, you know, I'm always trying to tell my students when my students say, uh, you know, well, I'm just trying to read the text and be faithful to the text. It's like, okay, but you're doing that already out of what your parents have taught you what your pastor has taught you how you've yeah. been trained to think about what the bible is and so you can't just your presuppositions are there so just acknowledge that they're there uh take the strengths that you want to and try to carve out you know sort of um uh, shave off the, the weaknesses you know or, or whatever um that might be uh, influencing the way you're reading the text too much and so tis is often called subjective and sort of read a response for that uh, example but i think um you know, one of the things I think good TIS does is tries to say, now I'm actually trying to describe what the Bible's doing. I might be using different terms that John or uh, Paul in Hebrews, uh, for example, is, uh, (laughs) sorry, Uh, the author of Hebrews. uh, I'm trying to actually uh, heuristically use different tools and ideas and concepts to explain what is already native to the text, like what's already happening Mm -hmm. there. So the church fathers are not just making stuff up. They're trying to say, how do I actually tie together the identity of Christ in light of all these different texts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So when I think of TIS, um, a good version of TIS, it's going to be deeply rooted in scripture, but it is going to be uh, not sort of mere biblicism, which, uh, I mean, I don't even know. Again, I don't even know if that exists because your presuppositions are creating your mere biblicism, right? So uh, so what are some of your thoughts on that? Because I think that's where... I hope TIS is going. I think that's partially where TIS is going or at least where it's maybe even settled is yeah. uh theologians and biblical scholars who both recognize the benefits of each other's fields. And mm-hmm. so you and I have joked in our conversations here before that uh you know I'm a theologian who likes the Bible and you just like the Bible and you do theology but that actually is that that actually is what we what we're doing which is good, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, much to your chagrin, sometimes people think that we're doing something really similar. So yeah. poor, poor, poor Brandon gets confused.
1: Yeah. I don't want to be confused with uh, biblical studies. Exeget- yeah. Ugh, yeah. No,
2: no, um, <laughs> no, I think that's really helpful. Um, as, as a side note, um, before I answer the question more directly, I think the the, um, category that you've introduced is our kind of, uh, denominational framework is really important too. Um, cause that is another, Uh, presupposition or lens or kind of way that we're socially located that's really important and i think and one of the things i was trying to push today is to say that um there are things that we um are willing to call socially located and things are not and it's pretty asymmetrical and unfair. Um, what, what we put in this category or that. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just trying to say, like, let's all just kind of be like, here's where I'm coming from. Uh, it's not just like, oh, I'm individualistic and whatever. It's like, no, you, you're you bringing more than that to the text. It's not yeah. just that, you know, they're Middle Eastern. It's no, you're, you're a lot more things than just an individualistic American, um, or whatever. Yeah. But um as far as you know where I hope it's going, um, you know, I did I made a call today um uh <laughs> as as the biblical scholar that uh theological interpretation of scripture should be guided by scripture. Um and you know it should be marked by discussions of discourses and not just single sentences that where we kind of riff on, you know, some theological themes in there. Um, but it actually should trace the contours of the biblical text. And so, of course, that's going to be um, consistent with the overall biblical narrative but will also be distinctive in its discussion of individual texts. Um, and so I think, I think that's really important. So one of the things I called for in, in biblical commentaries is, again, kind of broader discourse level discussions rather than verse by verse. So passage by passage rather than verse by verse. Mm-hmm. And then also stuff that traces themes. Um, you know, if we think that... Um, I don't know, something like, mm, divine speech is important to Hebrews, um, you know, God speaking, uh, then now, forever, um, maybe that could be a really nice framework for a theological commentary on Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just uh, is, you know, as a as an example, just yeah. completely off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, it's the, um, which is uh, the yeah you know, the dominant view I think in the book in uh, Hebrews now after a really great book was published uh, by Cambridge. So,
2: <laughs> um thanks, Brandon. No, but I mean, that's to say that it's. So it's something that I picked up in my work. Mm-hmm. I've, I could have picked anything. Um, it, I don't I don't think that divine speech is the only way to read Hebrews. I really don't. I think it's a great way to read Hebrews, obviously, because um, I keep doing it. But <laughs> that's not to say that there's a single thread. And so I think that theological commentary should find something that the biblical author has highlighted continually. And then that provides this kind of jumping off point for fruitful theological discussion. Yeah. And it means that... If, for example, theology proper um, or Trinitarian theology or even anthropology, if that's the thing that you want to like really go into and you think is a dominant thread in an author's work, then start there but obviously our theological systems and our author's theological reflections are all woven together. Mm -hmm. And so in Hebrews, for example, I mean, everybody highlights the Christology, but I mean, the Christology, the theology proper, the pneumatology, the anthropology, they're inseparable. Um, So, Yeah.
0: yeah. Inseparable operations of the theological loci. Yeah,
1: I was, loci I was so Book close to saying
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, I kind of felt like I saw it on your face that you were, you were wanting to, and like, you said hmm. not to. Um, all right. So, so in the spirit of reading uh things randomly out loud that neither of us, that the other person hasn't read, although you may have read this, so this is, this is related. This is uh not really a, a stump, but, um, uh, Daniel Trier and, uh, uh, wrote a, an article for the uh, Southern Baptist Journal of Theology uh, several years ago called Theological Interpretation of Scripture and Evangelical Systematic Theology, Iron Sharpening Iron? Question mark? Have you read this? I'm, almost, I'm yeah. assuming you probably have. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's been a minute, but yeah. Yeah. So I was, re- I was rereading it um, the other day because I was trying to figure out if I could actually define t- what I think TIS is, which I feel like is a task in and of itself, you know, uh, but I like, I, I, I tend to, to lean toward and like uh, the way sort of Trier works a lot of the stuff out. So I figured that was at least a good place to look. And there was a, there's a quote in here that I really liked that I just want to see kind of what you, uh, your response to it, because it's related to what we're saying, because he's making this bigger argument about how, you know, for the systematic theologian, uh, for example, uh, in evangelicalism, you want your theology to be guided by the text um and so you're still beholden to the text even if you're not necessarily quote unquote beholden to biblical studies methods or whatever right you're still beholden to the text you still should learn from those things and he talks a little bit about you know a a, a quote healthy form of protestant ecumenism uh you know it recognizes uh, unquote it recognizes that um that we do have different denominations that have different um you know presuppositions and things that we're going to bring to the text and care about Uh, So then he says here, I think this is a really helpful quote, and I just want to get your sort of uh, rapid feedback on it. He says, quote, TIS offers resources for enhancing creativity without costing particular traditions, their integrity, or evangelical theology, its integrity as a discourse rooted in biblical language. In other words, we need to get beyond unhealthy proof texting without getting beyond the commitment to prove theological claims vis-a-vis the Bible. We need scripturally informed imagination. So TIS can alert evangelical systematic theologians to the latent power of its own resources. It need no longer be merely a passive recipient of material from biblical studies, but neither should it ignore the theological potential of such scholarship, end quote. Mm. Thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, As far as, yeah. Yeah. I mean, coming back to the bigger question, so this is kind of jumping off of the Trier quote, and I hope I'll address it directly, but you can bring us back if, if I don't do it well enough. Um, coming back to the kind of conversation about, um, you know, biblical scholars and theologians playing together nicely. Um, I think that what, what Trier is highlighting is that um, from my perspective, um, you know, theologians, <laughs> theologians, theologians are perfectly capable of good um, exegesis, uh, you know, I I I really do think that (laughs) y'all and I think that the kind of fruitful sustained readings that we find in, um, you know, Fred Sanders work and Scott Swain and others, I think that's really valuable. I mean, um, yeah, there there's some great examples there where there's an extended reading, and they're not going to do that every time. Um, you know, I don't expect every time that Fred talks about, um, you know, first Corinthians eight, that he's going to offer some extended discussion of the Shema or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, he can draw either on exegetes who have, or, um, you know, can offer that himself. And uh, Scott, of course, has done that as well. So um, what I see in and uh, what uh trier is is saying is the that kind of dialectic
1: mm-hmm. that's
2: offered and a hope that um that the engagement of theologians with biblical scholarship can be generative and yeah. and then reciprocal so i i don't know if that makes sense but
0: yeah no i think that's good i mean he um you know he talks a little bit later about how uh he says, uh, quote, TIS arises not to reject the gifts of biblical scholarship, but to receive them within the body of Christ, wherein everyone must faithfully contribute their distinctive gifts. So he talks about this iron sharpening iron, this idea like theologians, you can be theologians. You don't have to try to yeah. pretend to be a biblical Probably. scholar. And he talks about, too, you don't have to justify your existence to the historical people. You don't have to, you know, play in the philosophical sandbox all the time. I think he uses the word in here of op- uh, be an opportunist, right? Take, take the best things from them where it's beneficial. Uh, to your claim, mm-hmm. as long as you're doing it, uh, in a way that's uh, faithful. So I think that's, I, I think one of the things I've thought a lot about, and I'll be interested in your thoughts on this is, uh, I, I, on the one hand, appreciate, appreciate, appreciate the bifurcation of systematic theology and biblical uh, studies, for example, or biblical theology for that matter, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a healthy bifurcation there, but at times I get frustrated mm-hmm. by the bifurcation because we don't, uh, we, we oftentimes don't, um, play well together. Right. Yeah. We, we do sort of, um, I mean, you even making the joke, like I do, I, I really do mean it when I say you theologians care about the Bible, like <laughs> you're joking, but you're joking because that's actually like a thing, right. That, like you yeah. have to sometimes in our world, you have to say, no, 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 no. no I, I, tr- I really do think that you love the Bible just because you do yeah. theology. Um, but there are some real reasons why that's been the case. Um, mm-hmm. there has been a strain of biblical studies that is basically canonic, you know, just like abandon all spiritual theological readings and thoughts. Um, and then there's the systematic theology people who are doing a lot of sort of ethereal philosophical stuff out here, uh, and not really engaging the text. Maybe not even, maybe not even being unbiblical, but just not really engaging it. It's like, yeah, I think that's probably biblical, but you're not actually engaging the text in the work while you're doing it. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think, I think what I want to say is on the one hand, I want there to be a, an ex- a world in which the, that bifurcation doesn't exist, that mm-hmm. we're all just sort of doing both, uh, but also recognizing that we can't all be experts at everything all the time. You've only got kind of one brain and one life to to learn something. And as you know, with Hebrews, uh, you know, you're going to spend most of your life just trying to figure out Hebrews, you know, try to do that well, you know, yeah. Um, again, even though you you have introduced this, you know, uh, field shattering um, argument in your Cambridge <laughs> book, but um, <laughs> But yeah, it's like you're going to spend most of your time just you, you've you got several projects ahead just on the book of Hebrews. Well, you can't all of yeah. a sudden turn around and be like, now I'm going to spend the next 30 years doing something else, you know. So I think there's, a, there's that helpful um, relationship there. And I think what's great about TIS at its best is that that actually is the playground that we both can play in. Like that is the yeah. sandbox that we both can get in, both be in the same sandbox, even if we're doing different things, you know. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy the other day, building on sandbox, I'm terrible at analogies and (laughs) illustrations and anything else. But, um, you know, sort of like we're we're both in the sandbox, and maybe some of us are building a sandcastle and the other ones are doing something else or I don't know something, Uh, but we're working together in the same sandbox, even if we might be at times building different castles. Uh, you know we eventually like to you know maybe make a moat and a bridge and uh, have the two castles uh, attached yeah. i don't know i'm terrible like i said i'm terrible at analogies
2: you can build the moat i'll build a castle or vice versa something we like that together yeah. and build a delightful little uh, escape yeah see what
0: i would say is i think biblical studies would be building the moat cuz you're the ones you know digging deep and then us theologians are just doing the the fancy artistic work up here you know that that uh, that needs that foundation or something I don't know. um but anyway so what do you think about that like just what are your thoughts on sort of the the bifurcation, that whole conversation, because uh, I think you and I both have a shared interest in, um, in some sense, uh, bridging that gap or closing that gap. But I mm-hmm. think, would you agree with me that the gap should still exist at some level? Or what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, because I think ultimately, the distinctive modes of theology and biblical studies need to remain um, intact. And really, um, while I do think that theological interpretation in a lot of ways is, um you know, the most fruitful mode. And and I hope that most of my work going forward is characterized in a lot of ways as theological interpretation. Some of it is going to be more oriented toward the church and more obviously theological interpretation, and some of it isn't. I mean, I'm working on a book on priestly messianism, and, you know, it's probably going to be you know, or it's, it's, it's a monograph. I mean, it's, ge- is geared toward a scholarly discussion. Yeah. I, of course, think it has really important implications for our anthropology and our Christology and all of that. And I'm not going to shy away from those discussions, but I'm, I'm writing it for biblical scholars with a theological aim
1: mm-hmm. because
2: that's what I think I need to do with that project. Um, so, you know, and I'm going to, you know, use the Tricks of my trade, or whatever. But I'm also going to be reading theologians and engaging in the modes that I've learned in my training as a theological scholar. And I think that's important too. Uh, One of the things that, um, I highlighted in my paper is um, in the recent or in a recent issue of uh, Journal of Theological Interpretation. Um, they they were uh, recounting um, a, a conference that took place at Durham in two thousand eighteen, I think, so the year after I left. So I didn't get to be there. Um, but Grant McCaskill and John Barclay they both talk about what it looks like for a biblical scholar to enter into theological conversations, and they both say. Um, we have to read theologians. That's super important. Can't do theology without reading some theologians.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and and uh, so McCaskill says, you know, and take on theological modes. And Barclay says, you know, immerse yourself in that thinker. And, I, and I'm totally with him. I and mean, Wes picks up on that as well in saying that. Um, really spending time with a singular theologian, mm-hmm. you know, enhances your understanding of the text as well as the tradition that that person represents. So, with that, um, I think you know uh, the inverse of that is that y'all uh, theologians should be reading biblical scholarship,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, as I as I know y'all are, and um, and be learning some of our modes too, so that. Um, One, you can evaluate what you're reading and two, so that um, where there's a a gap or a necessity um, that you can engage in some biblical, you know, quote unquote, biblical scholarship or exegesis Mm -hmm. or whatever we want to call it um, as well. And I think your work will be all the more fruitful for it. And we, of course, see that represented in in your dissertation that someday will everyone can enjoy as much as I do.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Um, Yeah, I I was thinking about that, you know, the dissertation too. I, you know, Bird was my supervisor and I don't, I wouldn't say that Mike would consider himself in the TIS movement, maybe at, at, ad, ad just adjacently ad, adjacent, adjacently. That's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, it's one of those words that you've written a bunch of times that have probably never said out loud. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting, even the, even the dictionary of theological interpretation, N.T. Wright and Van Hooser are both editors, which is just like To me, the first time I saw that was like, this doesn't make sense to me, but (laughs) there is a sense in which, you know, obviously bird is doing uh, a lot of systematic theological type work while also being able to, you know, deep dive on, uh, you know, fourth Ezra, uh, or second Ezra's whatever. Um, and so when I was studying with him, that was sort of the thing is I liked, you know, I've said this on the podcast a hundred times before and, and anybody who will listen, West Hills, Paul and Trinity was, was so formative for me. Uh, and I read that and I was like, he is living in those two worlds so well you know, Mm -hmm. uh, which is from this, you know, like you said, the Durham kind of Watson school. And uh, so when I got the bird, birds like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. We need more work like this. But what I didn't anticipate was him saying, now you need to get extremely familiar with all the Greco Roman literature on deification in the first century. And you need to get familiar with all the Second Temple Jewish literature on anything apocalyptic, anything son of man, anything angel, you know, angelic, this and that. And also, by the way, you need to you need to be like firmly planted in, you know, uh, pro-Nicene Trinitarianism and really understand how that happens. So my dissertation, uh, if it ever sees the light of day outside of that, will be cut down from from this. But uh, you know, I did 25, 30,000 words of hundred thousand words just on backgrounds, second temple backgrounds, Greco-Roman backgrounds. You know, I spent I spent more time than I ever wanted to like learning uh, Ge'ez, uh Egyptian.
2: I didn't so the, know you had learned
0: guess. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Not learned as a strong word. It was okay. enough to basically be able to do like very remedial understanding of first Enoch for like, you know, two paragraphs of the, of the dissertation, it's one of those kind of things.
2: Yeah.
0: And, uh, at the time I was like, this is ridiculous. I, I can't believe I'm being like having to do all this, but I say all that to say, uh, what it helped me do as somebody who considers myself more of a systematic theologian, maybe historical theologian, secondarily, perhaps, uh, is that I, it helped me uh, understand the text so much better and helped me understand, like, I'm at the point now, I'm pretty bullish on this, that like, I don't have a lot of, um, that's not, I'm not gonna say that, that's too negative. Um, I think that I think that when I read somebody talking about uh, Christology and divine Christology and the idea that Jesus is fully divine in scripture, and they don't have any sort of grasp on the first century background and what that would mean contextually, they're missing so much. Like you're just yeah. missing so much when you don't see, um, you know, Hurtado and Bacham and some of the work that they've done on early high Christology. Whereas in my dissertation, I'm, you know, I'm a little critical in, in places of some of their methodology and say like, we need more, but also like my dissertation wouldn't exist without that type of conversation. So yeah. that's where, you know, you look at somebody like Hurtado, who's really just a biblical studies slash historian. We're going to disagree about some stuff. He has a, you know, kind of a relatively strong view that, that the early Christians are more binitarian than Trinitarian. Well, we're going to disagree mm-hmm. about that. Uh, but I, I mean, his work is so influential on what I've done. It's actually helped me build a better Trinitarian argument from revelation because of what he's done. So I think that's where, um, that's where I've been able to experience it and be like, okay, I, I have to appreciate these people because I have seen the fruit of their work. Uh, you people, I should say, uh, seen the fruit of their work, uh, help me do things better, you know, in a way that actually I'm actually being more faithful to the text because of that, even though I'm doing something ultimately different than what they're doing. Yeah. That was my yeah. long rant for the positive, positive view it. of this. Yeah.
2: I love it. You're, you're quite right though. I mean, um, anytime you're doing, um, you know, true interdisciplinary work. And I'm of course, you know, really when I use the language of interdisciplinary, I'm thinking of something beyond the biblical studies and theology, something yeah. that's gonna be in another building at the university. Um, like you know, more properly in the social sciences or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing that, you're learning two modes and that's really difficult. I mean, b- people who do that well are really um really, really special. Um, but even being able to operate um you know, in the ways that that you're framing, like to be able to work with the backgrounds and the systematic theological discussions well is really hard. And, you know, I always feel that way. I mean, when I was writing the Trinity Without um, Hierarchy essay, I thought, what in the, what in the world am I doing? Yeah. Um, first of all, they've asked me to write on Paul and I, and I so regretted it. I mean, <laughs> every moment of, you know, until it was done, yeah. I thought, what have you done, Madison? This is the stupidest thing you've ever agreed to. This is,
0: this because... is by far the deepest cut of your Pauline authorship of Hebrews of, of all the deep <laughs> cuts. Like that's the one, right? You got You did all this Paul work. You were familiar with the Pauline literature.
2: Yeah. Um, no. Um, but anyways, but that was such a difficult essay because I felt like, okay, I've got to get versed in <laughs> Pauline studies, yeah. um, which I you know I am to a degree, but it's not my primary area. Yeah. Um, and then all of the pro Nicene theology and the contemporary discussions about EFS and all of that. And um I you know, I certainly had a lot more work that I could have done to do it better, but um but even what I was able to accomplish was really hard.
0: So yeah. Yeah. That was a a bird always uh, would joke with me that I was a double or a triple major because he was sort of forcing Mm. me to learn these different worlds. And I hated it when it happened and definitely feel, I mean, part of why I'm so like, uh, disoriented by my dissertation still to this day is like, uh, what did I do? Like that was, (laughs) there was so like, I don't even like some of it's like, I don't even remember reading that. I know I did at some point, but like, you know, there's some yeah. stuff in there about like Iliad and, and Hesiod and the sort of divine spirits. And I'm like, I remember doing that at some point, but like, I couldn't do that twice. Like I couldn't get up and lecture yeah. about it right now, oh, wow. you know, just random stuff like that. So, um, I don't say that to brag. I said to say that I have a, I have a very, um, uh, schizophrenic, uh, dissertation, but, um, there is that sense in which like, it did help me get better at the things I was mm-hmm. doing. Um, so I, I think if, if TIS is going to move forward, at least in my perspective, or at least a TIS, I want to be a part of. It's one that um, I think even on the one hand, theologians are reading biblical scholars and vice versa. But even that there's at least a little bit of a um, not just relying on them, but actually becoming maybe not a master, but at least becoming um, conversant. Conversant. Yeah. yeah. Conversant, in it, which is which is difficult to do uh, at times yeah. uh, in and of itself. Right. Because you do you're not learning master level, but you're definitely getting getting in that range where you have a real good grasp of what you're doing. Uh, if you want to do it responsibly, now we all know people who uh, we see them just footnoting other people, and you're like, you actually don't know this at all, which is it's fine. That happens sometimes, uh, but that can't be like the bulk of your career. I feel like yeah. if you're really going to do it well.
2: Yeah, agreed. So,
0: um, so what would be your uh, what are your big takeaways as you think about the the conference that you're at today, the different ways that they've talked about TIS, all this kind of stuff. Uh, what are some of your big takeaways from where you think? TIS is going. I mean, you, you were, you were there for five hours with a ton of people who would, who would I think identify uh, in the TIS world. What were some of the kind of positive takeaways that you got there about where it's going? What are some fruits? Uh, I mean, it was, it was partially a funeral for the Brazos theological commentary, which is, yeah. uh, which is uh, sad. Uh, but what are some of the, what are some of the positives that came out of that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, it, that's hard to say because um I think that a lot of it was reflecting on what hadn't worked mm-hmm. and what had what had been, and that certainly was a part of my paper as well. Um, but when we were kind of looking forward, like programmatically, um, you know, that's kind of what I was asked to do, and so that was a lot of my my paper. And you know, I hesitate to say that um, what I have put forward as maybe the future of theological interpretation is is the actual, you know, future of that, because yeah. I am really located within the kind of Durham School and whatever. Um, And it's hard for me to kind of imagine, um, as I was giving the paper and reflecting on what I had already heard in the day, um, thinking about, okay, you know, I I tried to think about this in terms of what biblical scholarship is doing and what systematic theology is doing. um, But have I actually accomplished that well? Mm. Um, Have I only offered a program for biblical scholars and those sympathetic to the, to what they're doing. Um, and on the one hand, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, you know, because of the reasons that we've discussed, but, you know, thinking through if there's another mode of theological interpretation that is more theologically oriented mm-hmm. and less, less geared toward the text, but, but not foreign by, you know, or absent or detached, that's a better word. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I do think that the heyday of talking about theological interpretation, this, you know, discussion uh, withstanding, um, you know, that that that's largely passed. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things I quote in the paper is, is Walter Moberly saying, I don't care about talking about this anymore. I just yeah. I want to see that somebody can do good biblical interpretation. And hopefully, since you and I have done that, or we've done biblical interpretation, hopefully is good at yeah. some other point Then you know, we've we've put our money where our mouth is or something like that. But anyways, I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Do you think that there is a, a moving forward benefit to continuing to talk about TIS as a thing? You think we should just, uh, we should just be, you know, when you see it, or do you think that there is a benefit to say, no, I actually am a proponent of an exemplar, not exemplar. That's not the right word, but a purveyor of TIS. Or should we just say it doesn't mean anything anymore. Let's move on. What do you think? That's
2: a good question. Um, so I think that some people who say they're doing theological interpretation um, are not doing it in the way that I would like. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's like, you know, is that just because I'm grouchy or whatever? Well,
0: there's a lot of um, Baptists I don't like, maybe too. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we're both um, grouchy. That's right. <laughs>
2: um So I think that an ongoing reflection on method and practice and things like that is important. Um, Whether or not it's actually oriented around a kind of theoretical discussion of TIS is is something um, that that I'd be interested in kind of thinking about more. But I think that if somebody says, I'm doing theological interpretation, especially if I'm a reviewer or if I'm engaged in a kind of critical conversation about that piece of work, um, I'd like the opportunity to say, I don't think you are. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, for me to say that, um, we have to have in the guild, some kind of shared understanding of what that practice entails.
0: Yeah. So. And you think 10, 15 years ago, one of the problems was that there was literally no shared vision <laughs> for what it was. Cause it does feel that way sometimes.
2: I, I don't know. I mean, some of it is, some of it is pretty consistent. And so I think that, um, I think that this, the theoretical and the application of the theory, I mean, which is so often the case right. so the hermeneutical discussion and the interpretation um, was really kind of detached. And yeah. so in the hermeneutics, I, again, I think it's important to get through nuance and to think through these different things. Um, but what I always found in some of those hermeneutical discussions is, okay, what does this look like? Yeah. And that was a nice thing. I mean, um, in my module that I took with Walter Moberly on TIS, Um, in the first half of it, we talked about the theory, you know, what is TIS and we talked about a lot of different methodological considerations and Mm -hmm. whatever, even like, you know, critical considerations and things kind of skeptical, like, nah, don't do confessional exegesis. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in the second half, we read a lot of interpretations of Genesis 22 and evaluated them along those lines. Now, I mean, I would have loved to have seen some more varied approaches. I mean, there they they were mostly very German um, <laughs> uh, people that we were reading, um, you know, for example. Um, and so that makes it harder. Um, if people yeah. are generally coming out of the same school, um, they have some shared assumptions. And I think you and I um, coming out of different schools, um and even though we've obviously been formed in different places, I think that we largely come out of the same kind of, you know, cultural background, um, uh, like, I don't know, what am I thinking of? Like, Culture a of theology? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. something like that. Um, but anyways, so it makes a difference. Um, yeah. And that was one of the other things. Sorry, I'll, I'll stop after this. No, you're good. That was one of the other things that came up today. It's like, you know, everybody else I was talking to was very yale and, and I'm very dumb <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, unapologetically. So, um, and I really can't change that. So this, you know,
1: yeah.
2: I, um, trying to engage, it was, you know, it was almost like, uh, speaking a foreign language, like they all, you know, had a really shared vocabulary and some of this is just, I'm just ignorant of these discussions, but, um, they had a really shared vocabulary and were able to nuance one another in ways that I simply wasn't. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. What would you, you keep talking about this Durham school, which I understand. I understand what that
1: means.
0: Yeah, no, I understand what it means, but um, how would you distinguish, uh, what would you say are some, uh, for people who are listening, who who are kind of like, okay, I'm following kind of, but you, now we're using, I think, shared language that maybe our listeners, my listeners aren't, our listeners aren't, um, aren't familiar with. So how would you distinguish maybe a handful of schools? Like what is the presuppositions of Yale versus Durham versus maybe more of a, trier van hooser like how, how would you work through uh do you have any kind of thoughts on uh, maybe some basic assumptions and these aren't value judgments these are just just assumptions or presuppositions
2: yeah um i mean the yale school is um is largely indebted to uh bart and and uh childs mm-hmm. and it's co- coming out of uh i said i wasn't going to say this again today but a post-liberal program <laughs>
1: um
2: and it is more concerned with uh um the generative promise of theology
1: mm-hmm.
2: um you know and then we have uh, as a kind of mediating position or in a mediating position is some some people like trier and van hooser i mean um van hooser in particular is of course been shaped by the the work of bart in particular mm-hmm. um but, um, has moved beyond it and obviously brings a more evangelical flavor to what he's doing. And I think the same coming from his student, Dan Trier. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that, you know, that Dan is subsumed under Kevin or anything like that. I think that he, he has some incredible contributions to the field and to the discussion. Um, and I, I really love his work. Uh, Durham is, um, you know, it's, at least in this discussion, it would be largely characterized by the theoretical discussions of Walter Moberly and Francis Watson and their reflections on theological interpretation. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be adjacent to the conversations with Van Hooser and Trier um, more than than the prior, even though, again, Francis is largely shaped by Bart as well. Um, so they're all kind of downstream in a sense. Yeah. But... Um, but not evangelical and more about the, uh, a more Catholic Mm -hmm. uh, little C Catholic um, understanding of community and uh, scripture as being formative, um, but by no means inerrant, for example. Um, And then that, that reading the Bible should have a theological aim that it it should matter for people of faith. Yeah. Yeah. so I don't know if that is helpful. Yeah. But.
0: No, what, what's it? Well, what I think is, uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, you and I and, and others like us have an affinity too is that like um, you're from the quote unquote Durham school, but yet you do have this evangelical flavor to you that's different than some others who come out of uh, the Durham school, for example. And then you've got like uh, your Van Hoosers and Triers uh, who tend to be more ecumenical, which is more, uh, you know, um, uh, a little more amicable toward. Uh, Durham type thinkings of this sort of community right. reading and, and uh, ecclesial context and small C Catholic and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So really, what we're all doing, I think, ultimately, is just attacking uh, the post liberals. I think that's uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting. Trier does bring up the fact that he says, you know, um, I think it's actually in that same article I was quoting earlier. He says, you know, one of the problems for evangelical is is that you want to be quote unquote post liberal and you want to be uh, or you want to be sort of separated from Bart and Hans Frey and these others, mm. and yet when it really comes down to it, Bart is doing it better than you. So uh, that's, so he's kind of like, it's a, it's not a, it's a little bit of a barb to say, uh, you are um, insulting this sort of movement, but also they're okay. doing it really well. Like Bart is very textual in the way that he does yeah. stuff. So like, you need to be uh, sort of aware of that. I'm probably being a little too crass for, for Dan, cause he's much kinder uh, than I am, but basically that's, that's the idea, right? So there, I think there's a, a good sense in which we can all learn from each other within the the TIS movement. I mean, I have, I have a pretty good, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, gag reflex for uh, uh, reader response type stuff, sort of, uh, especially when it's kind of, uh, what does this mean to me and my community is the meaning. You know, I have, I have a pretty strong uh, affinity against that. Um, so on the one hand, like when I read some of that kind of versions of it, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested in that version of TIS. Uh, but when I read other TIS, which is sort of like, let's shoehorn and proof text, different things, you know, different things to fit our theology. Well, it's the same version of it, actually, just in a different way, right? Um, so I think that's where that, that melding of the concern for the text and the small C, small C Catholic and the sort of community of faith is important. How have we received it? How does the Spirit continue to work in our interpretation, while at the same time having some real legitimate confessional boundaries and being okay with those boundaries? Like, One thing I learned in my dissertation, I didn't learn it in my dissertation, I learned it from good friends who kept telling me to stop doing this as I was finishing my dissertation, is like, you can't make everybody happy. So stop trying to make everybody happy. Like when you're doing TIS, you can't equally uh, make happy the critical scholars and also the evangelicals and also the Catholics and also, you know, whatever. Uh, You just can't do it. So um, you have to, to sort of live within the confession that you have. And then try to the best you can sort of pull from the best of all worlds. And I feel like Durham, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, you, West Hill, um, who else am I missing that has kind of come out of there recently that I'm not thinking of? I mean, Francis Watson's kind of the, the and Moberly are kind of the fathers. Uh, yeah, of I mean, that. John
2: but, Barclay, of course, yeah, is, yeah. I mean, he he's not one who has um, reflected on theological interpretation formally as much, but right. I mean, he's always been doing it. And he, and he has uh, weighed in on the discussion in some great ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there are others. I mean, there are a lot from from my kind of season of of time there.
0: Um, Lewis yeah. is, has has kind of been uh, he of he's been he's been adjacent. Uh, I can say it properly when I just say adjacent. When I try to make it, you know, I, I adjacent. Adjacent? Adju- no, it's adjacent. I
1: don't. Think okay, so.
0: it's fine. It's it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I think that it's pro. I think it's okay either way. But either way, adjacent adjacent. Um, it does seem like that's one and he was one of my examiners. And so uh, you know, yeah. you and whenever I talked to him, uh, and I realized like, oh, he was your he was one of your readers and he was one of Wes's readers. I'm like, oh, okay. So he actually does he does dabble in this world as a sort of Catholic uh Nicene scholar. So I guess you in some ways you can probably include him, even though he's not doing as much of that type of work per se.
2: Oh, totally. I mean, I think yeah, Lewis is um Lewis provides a bridge um in a lot of ways between kind of biblical scholarship and and um and theology proper or yeah. you know and, or theological work because um you know the people he's working on are doing biblical exegesis um but he's also talking about their construction of theology and so wow. I think that's that's one of the ways that he can do that really well. Yeah. So it's really yeah I was so thankful for Lewis. Um we had a lot of great conversations and he really helped me to um to think through, yeah, what I was doing and, and the questions I needed to answer for my project to be meaningful. Yeah. Um, And, you know, some things that he felt like had been lacking in previous discussions and stuff. And so I was really yeah. thankful for that.
0: Yeah, yeah that was one thing that was he was one of the ones that encouraged me to like, stop trying to make everybody happy and just do what you want to do, like do the work that you want to do. Um, one of the best things advice he gave me, I don't think it, I don't think any of this is private that he wouldn't want me to share, but one of the things he said is, you know, one of the things you want to do is you just can't convince the people ahead of you who have already decided that you're wrong and you don't want to spend all your time just trying to get all your colleagues to agree with you. Cause that's dangerous. So just write what you want to write, what you think is faithful and let the people behind you decide whether or not it's any good. You know, I was like, that's actually a really, uh, like a really freeing way to think about it. So
2: unapologetic is one of lewis's best modes.
0: yep yep well and i and i want to live in that world uh but especially dissertation phase you're just so insecure all the time and you have so much imposter syndrome that doesn't totally go away but it seems like it's ramped in that time it's like but if i'm myself everybody's just gonna think i'm an idiot so i just need to make them all happy and it's like that's not it doesn't work so all right any any final thoughts uh encouragements for people who are listening maybe a seminary student or a pastor who's like i'm interested in ts i like tis I, i'm You know, this is kind of a world that I, that I feel comfortable in. Uh, What would be some advice you would give them for their work, for their future studies? uh, Some ways to think about uh, doing this type of work.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things, this comes out of some of my own personal conversations this week and kind of reflecting on my own educational development and then the ways that I hope I'm forming my students. I mean, I would say that, you know, read more broadly. Um, you know, we've been talking about different schools and traditions. I mean, one of the things we've seen is that when you're siloed within a particular stream, uh, you sort of miss things. You don't realize that what you're doing is um, specific to your particular location, that it is part of a school. Um, and, you know, and that became um, a renewed kind of reflection for me today as I was, you know, sitting with all these people from different places and thinking, okay, to what extent is what I'm doing really 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 durham you know um but i think that it is really important especially for your listeners who are students or for who are earlier in their theological journey or whatever um and i of course don't mean that in diminutive sense um you know reading conversation with others um you know whether it's someone in authority over you or a peer or something like that and make sure that when you're engaging with broader scholarship um, that you have a place to have a sounding board and to think through what you're reading and how it intersects with what you've learned and um, that you can think critically. If you're not understanding why so-and-so from X school that's really different than yours is is not, you know, it doesn't align with the evangelical faith or something like that, mm-hmm. then take a break <laughs> and come back to it when you're able to reflect in that way, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now that's encouraging. And that's, that's one of the things that um, I think I get the impression that there are a lot of, even my students, some of my undergrad students here, you know, they start getting caught on to enjoying the fathers, for example. And they're like, oh, what are they doing? How do I do what they're doing? It's like, okay, um, <laughs> yes and amen. I mean, I'm a patristics guy, so I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm And I'm usually the one that's introducing them to that propaganda <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But they're like, oh, oh, what? Like, that's a different kind of reading of the Bible than what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. And so then they start going, okay, where do I go next? What do I do next? And so it's always like, okay, calm down, like, you know, don't try to do it all at once. But um, yeah, I think that's good advice to sort of start reading more broadly, because uh, I've shared this uh, in in various places before, not that anybody's heard it, but, um, you know, I, my undergrad was very, very distinctly sort of um, uh, anti-church fathers, anti-patristic, sort of anti-theological readings, um, sometimes very overtly, sometimes just by, you know, by just, just watching what they were doing. Uh, and then I read the church fathers and I was like, oh my gosh, like, what is this? This is how I like, this is how I feel like I default to reading the Bible, but nobody, everybody keeps telling me to stop doing it, you know? And so then I was like, I guess I'll just do theology, you know? And I was like, oh no, no, actually I can do both. I can actually read the Bible and do theology. Uh, but part of that was being uh, introduced to things. So I think that's a good, yeah, I think that's a good encouragement. I echo your echo of the echo. So, All right, Madison. Well, we had a good, uh, hopefully good conversation about TIS there. I don't know if we, if it was mainly just us musing or if it's helpful to anybody else, but, uh, hopefully it gets people thinking. Yeah. Well, as, as two people who are young in our career, who, who enjoy TIS and want to do this, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a big fan. I mean, when I asked you sort of, uh, should we keep fighting for the label TIS? There's a part of me that's like, yeah, I want to keep fighting for that as a thing, because I think it's, uh, when done well, it's a good umbrella for interdisciplinary, or cross-disciplinary work that I think we should all be doing. Um, okay. You know, people lament the bifurcation and blame, you know, Gobbler or whoever else. Um, which there's some truth to that, I guess. But um, yeah. you know, you read Calvin or you read some of the Fathers, or you read Luther, and you're like, man, they're just like in and out of history and the text and the languages. Like they're just like,
1: yeah,
0: effortless, effortlessly at times. Yeah. And we don't do that as much anymore. And the bifurcation has created that problem in some sense. But also, uh, yeah, if we're willing to learn together and and sort of work together under some helpful umbrella, then perhaps we can get back to doing some of that well. That's what I hope for anyway.
2: Yeah, same here. All
0: right, Madison, good talking to you.
2: You too,
1: see ya.